Ronananian. There was a dent in the right front bumper, and you could see where the dent lined up. It perfectly was in line where the horn was in that lower right-hand corner of the front fender on the passenger side. Doctor, the days of not diagnosing a problem are over because I'm seeing more and more where the shops that are out there posing, pretending to be mechanics and not diagnosing, are coming out with a laundry list of here's what the car needs. Welcome to the radio home of Ron and Anian, the car doctor. Since 1991, this is where car owners the world over turn to for their definitive opinion on automotive repair. If your mechanic's giving you a busy signal, pick up the phone and call in. The garage doors are open. But I am here to take your calls at 855-560-9900. And now, here's Ronnie. Hey, come on in. Sit down. Ronnie and the car doctor here at 855-560-9900. Here to take your calls and answer your questions, whatever they might be about your automobile. 855-560-9900. A little busy this hour. I can see the phone banks already backed up and lit up judging by the number of calls that are coming in. So if you do get a busy signal, please, by all means, leave a message at 855-560-9900. And Fast Harry will call you back either during later on this hour or during the course of the week and set you up for the next time we're live on the air on the network Saturdays, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time. And um, you can expect a call and expect to be on the air uh, sometime during those two hours. But uh, as always, we're here now at 855-560-9900. We'd like to try and talk to you live if we can. But I've got to tell you, the phones are very, very, very busy this afternoon. There's a lot going on this hour. We've got um, a couple of interesting people to talk to. We're going to be giving away a Denso spring tune-up kit this hour, consisting of Denso Iridium TT spark plugs and air filter wiper blades. And uh, we all know that you want to get a chance to try those Denso Iridium TT spark plugs made with their patentum, patented, I can't say that, the patented, the patented, the patented iridium alloy. Pronunciation is very important in radio. One of the first things I learned at the uh, Catholic School of Radio Hard Knocks. Yes, I can see my professor at the current moment is about to scold me. Yes, sir. No, no, no. Just remind us next week we'll change the batteries in your tongue before you get on the air. Oh, is that what it was? I knew something was cockeyed. Um, but um, in any event, we're going to be giving away a Denso spring tune-up package this hour. But we do want to take your calls and answer your questions because that's what this radio show is all about. Some quick commentary, if I can, real fast. Had a conversation at the chiropractor this morning. Um, they, we were talking about dead batteries, and they wanted to know, you know, how many customers at the shop had dead batteries with the recent cold snap that was here in the Northeast. And I, I thought about it, and I said, you know, none. And they said, how's that possible? And I said, you know what, if we're doing our job, we start in September, and if we're doing our job, by the time December and January roll around, everybody's battery's been tested and replaced, and we have very few failures. And I said, why? What's the curiosity? And they were telling me about a patient that had a recent problem where the battery went dead and AAA did not want to send out the service truck because it was so cold they were fearful of the service tech getting frostbite working on the vehicle out in the snow, to which I said, well, AAA wants to be in the battery business. Let the guy change the battery regardless of the weather. Why should you have the option to pick and choose? But it did bring up an interesting point, and I have been reading this of late, and I suppose we could have a conversation with AAA to get to the bottom of it. I'm hearing that... AAA batteries, on average, don't last what regular batteries last. And I'm starting to observe that in that it seems that a lot of the replacements are in the two to three, three maybe to four-year range, not necessarily a five- or six-year 
range on batteries, and it makes me think, well, I guess they're not power frame grid technology, and we all know that that's the best. But um, it makes me wonder what it is they're selling, and I guess they're trying to be cost competitive and um, sell something economical for another fancy way of saying cheap, but um, maybe not working quite that well. But I was surprised to hear they wouldn't send somebody out. But the bottom line is if you are taking proper care of your car and the repair shop is testing that battery going into the cold weather, then you shouldn't have that problem and be stuck on the side of the road, which I don't think anybody should ever have a dead battery unless you left something on. So anyway, that's my opening rant, opening conversation. I want to get to the phones because they're just crazy, backed up, and busy. Let's get over and talk to Kenny from, of all places, Waldwick, New Jersey. Kenny, you're on with the car doctor, sir. How can I help? Hi, Ron. Yeah, hi. Um, I have a question. I have a 2011 Dodge Durango, and I'm having some trouble with the charging system at this point. Okay. Uh, the TIPA module had gone bad last year. I sent it out to a private company, had it rebuilt, came back, car ran great for a year, and it just crapped out again. Okay. And I'm I'm getting a no charging situation, and I don't know if the voltage regulator is inside the TIPA module or inside the ECU, but I have changed the alternator and changed the battery, and I still have a no charge condition. Okay, so let me ask you this, Kenny. What sort of fault codes are you getting out of the vehicle? Well, I mean, I'm getting all kinds of check engine lights. I don't have a scan tool of my own where I can pull a code. I don't have any scan tool whatsoever. I just go by, you know, by feel. Okay, voltage. Uh, well, because voltage regulator really shouldn't be part of tip a module voltage regulator is more towards pcm pcm is what's going to be the control for charge rate i mean i'm sure some of the circuitry off the top of my head does go through tip them but the, the major responsibility comes back to pcm the decisions have to be made there as far as um you know what should charge and what not should charge um so uh, you know first step is i need to know what scan what code is there because that's going to tell me where the module lies or where the problem lies in what module does that make sense? Yeah. Um, um, I, I don't see a TIPM module being part of it. TIPMs are responsible for a lot. That's one of the things they're not responsible for. Okay. Now, um, is it possible to change that without having to reflash the, no. you know, the ECU to the VIN? Nope. You're going to have to. That's going to require, if, if it is a bad PCM, and I'm not saying it's a bad PCM. Your question was who's got the authority, who's got who's got the decision. The decision-making falls in the PCM. If the PCM does have to be replaced, it will have to be flashed unless you find a, even if you find a module, what am I saying? Even if you find a module used for the exact VIN of the vehicle, you would still have to have the VIN flashed into that PCM as well. So it's not something that can easily be done. Cars got complicated in the last five years. Yeah, well, I know. I can't. I'm kind of locked out of it. I can't really right. handle yep. it at this point. But. Yep. And and oh. the, the average repair shop has difficulty handling it. I have to tell you, we had we had Chrysler capability up through model year 2013. Just last year, Chrysler made it so cost prohibitive, I have not renewed the subscription yet. And it's a business decision. I can't decide if I want to uh, simply because of what Chrysler is putting everybody through. I will say this. There is a bright spot in the sense that Chrysler is now struggling, but they are supposed to join the J2534 protocol where they will allow independent repair shops using what we call J2534, which is another device other than dealer-level tool to communicate at dealer level. Chrysler is one of the last car companies to to adhere to this, but sometime they're saying later in the fall of this year 
or by the end of 2016, Chrysler should be there so it will get easier to find an independent repair shop that has that capability, which is one of the reasons, as a business owner, I'm not spending $3,500 right now. How many cars am I going to do in the next seven months? Doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. Right. So, all right, sir. Okay, thanks for your help. You're very welcome, Kenny. Good luck to you. Let's go on over real quick. Can we talk to Bill and 74 Dodge Charger and see what we can do here? Hey, Bill. Hey, hey, Ron. How you doing? Good, sir. What's going on? Okay, I just had a quick question for you. Yeah. I, I picked up a 74 Dodge Charger. It has 75,000 miles on it with a 440 uh, V8. Right. Uh, it doesn't burn any oil or anything like that, but uh, with with so many different types of oils and additives and synthetics these days, I'm just curious, what what would be the best oil to use in an older engine like that? Driven racing oil. Um, driven ra- it used to be Joe Gibbs, all right? And and the reason I say it's the best, I, I did the research for the hot rod. You know, I'm sure you've seen a picture of that or two flying around the website, but I, I did I did the research for the hot rod. It was Joe Gibbs Racing Oil at the time, and then it, they became Driven Racing Oil. You'll find it on the web under either name. Uh, I can't think of the guy's name that we actually had on the show a couple of times. He is like an oilologist. This guy knows everything about motor oil and about how to mix it, how to blend it, what to do for it. And if you call their tech line, I think you'll end up speaking to him. We'll get his name uh, up after we come back from the pause. But if you call their tech line and ask them what their... Uh, Lake know, Speed Jr. is his name. Lake Speed Jr. There you go. I knew it was something Lake. on Lake Speed Jr. If you Google Lake Speed Jr., you'll come to the company, which is Driven Racing Oil. Uh-huh. And you, in all honesty, you can probably pick up the phone, talk to TechLine. You'll end up talking to Lake. Tell him what you've got, and he'll tell you what's the best oil they have in their catalog. But they seem to be one of the very few companies out there that is blending oil to meet specific requirements, and they're doing it very successfully. Yeah, because I, 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 from what I understand, uh, the old, the older engines uh, had zinc in. I mean, the, the older oils had zinc right. in them. Correct. And uh, they don't have that any longer. That's why right. I, I didn't want to ruin the engine. Right. Yep. The wrong oil yeah. And so. Yeah. Um, but, but that's what you want. That's where I would go if it were mine. Okay. Sounds good. I appreciate it, Ron. All right, Bill. Thank you very much. You're very welcome, sir. You take good care. I'm Ron and Annie in the Car Doctor. We'll be back right after this. Ron and Annie and the Car Doctor rolling along this hour at 855-560-9900. By the way, get out to Facebook, Ron and Annie and the Car Doctor Facebook page. We just got a fresh video up there. We've got a bunch of fresh videos. Our latest is the video of the audio, if I can say it like that, when Big Jim Mouchette stopped by the shop this week. to uh, He actually made a very nice presentation to me, a drawing of the hot rod, uh, which is hanging here in the studio. And um, Jim actually stopped by and we talked to him a little bit about his inspiration. And it's just, it's a great video. You can see the talent just come off the screen. But, you know, how he'll draw a conceptual drawing of an automobile. You bring him a a plain Jane six-cylinder two-door Chevelle. You know, what color you want it to be, what kind of wheels, you know, artwork, different body modifications. He'll draw it, and you can actually see the car before you go through the expense of building it and decide what works from a visual appearance. Very interesting. Very, very interesting concept, what he's got going on, and um, just just some very, very nice stuff that he's uh, got there. And I think it's BigJimsArt.com, if I remember the website correctly, so you can get out there as well 
And uh, see, and if I'm wrong, I'm sure Tom and Tony are going to correct me in about three minutes. So BigJimsArt.com, I believe it is. Anyway, let's get on over to line one, talk to Dennis in Denville, New Jersey, 2002 Toyota Tacoma. Dennis, you're on with the car doctor, sir. How can I help? How are you doing, Ron? Good, sir. What's going on? I got a 2002 Toyota Tacoma. Okay. I bought it used about a year ago. Right. Car's in great shape, but always had a rough idle. I How? took it to the local mechanic. He right. He did the, the plugs and the mass air cleaning and says he can't find anything. Took it over to Toyota. Toyota happened to find that the, the frame was gone, so they replaced the frame. Right. But I still have the rough idle. I'm okay. I'm taking it back to Toyota, and they say that uh, everything appears to be normal. How how rough of a rough idle? Uh, you notice it when you're in, in drive at a red light, the engine starts to shake, the hood starts to shake, you can see the aerial vibrate, and just a little vibration. Okay. And a little little throttle on the gas while the foot's on the brake will get rid of it. And it's there's no check engine light on, right, Dennis? Well, actually, the the check engine light has just come on. Okay. And uh, it got a uh, a 420 catalytic converter efficiency, right? I replaced the oxygen sensor, and then uh, the light came back on. Brought it to mechanic. The mechanic got a PO136. He put a new catalytic in it. And the light came back on. Now he wants to replace the engine control module. Okay, well. Was it recall on that? Yeah, well, hang on a second. Um, I, I think they did the right parts. I just think for everyone's, I just want to make sure everybody out there understands it. I think you've got the numbers backwards. The 136 was an O2 heater circuit. The 420 was catalytic converter efficiency. So just, I just want to keep the codes with the components replaced. Um, any, any diagnosis done when either of these components were replaced, or is this just a random... Ah, let's just change it. Well, I thought there was diagnosis done. He's okay. a reputable mechanic. I've been dealing with him for years. But right. I'm getting a little concerned about the uh, changing the ECM. Um, yeah, because I have to tell you, it's it's not, on that particular Toyota, it's not necessarily what I would consider um, uh, common. L- let me ask you this. When, when they change the O2, which O2, upstream uh, or downstream? Downstream. Okay, that that's correct. Now, there 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 have been conversations where the upstream O2 does affect and skew the downstream O2. You know, have they made any comments about what fuel trim looks like on the vehicle when they look at it with a scan tool? Uh, he said it was normal the uh, the two times before I was there. Okay, uh, you know, one thirty six is is an issue with either lack of switching on the downstream O2. They actually use downstream O2 to help do an air, to to control fuel trim on this vehicle, all right? And then the other thing that can affect this is the air-fuel ratio sensor, which is the upstream, we're going to call it an upstream O2, but it's actually an upstream air-fuel. The heater circuit there can affect that air-fuel sensor's operation, and cause a P0136 for the downstream, if you follow what I'm saying. Yes. So I would I would definitely take a look at the upstream air fuel sensor. Heater resistance typically, and it's nothing more than a DVOM test, typically heater resistance, and they're going to have to figure out out of the four wires which two are the heater, um, and it's easy enough to look at a wiring diagram, but you're going to see a resistance value, oh, between 0.7 tenths and... 1.5 ohms 
And they need to look at that cold. They need to look at that warm because it is going to vary and make sure in both instances it's it's plugged in. All right. Uh, I'm sorry. It's 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 consistent. You know because it will change. It will change with time. Um, the other thing that can affect it is, you know, just mechanical condition of the engine. When I get something this old, even though and guys are going to tell me I'm wasting my time, I will go through both a mechanical compression test and a cylinder leak down test, especially on this. And what does it take you to get the plugs out of this? Twenty minutes. Um, it's not the most difficult engine in the whole world to work on. It's fairly straightforward and simple. So I would tell you conquer those, conquer whatever codes you're getting, and then if you want to get back to the rough idle question, my one thought would be: is it different or better in reverse? This is uh, is this a sticker? This is this is an automatic. You said correct. This is an automatic. Right. Yes. If you put the car in reverse, is it different? Is I the, believe it's the same because uh, all the engine mounts have been changed when they. Redid the frame. They put a new frame on the truck okay. less than a year okay. ago. Because that, that was my other conversation. Right. Um, let me ask you this. It's not since they did the frame, is it? It was always there. Well, it was always there. That's the reason I brought it over to Toyota, because the local mechanic said this is normal. It's a normal issue with this engine, okay. in his opinion. The, the, the only way I would tell you, I would tell you the conditions where it could be normal, all right, and I'll leave it here, is that... You know, if fuel trims look good throughout the range, if there are no fault codes, if it's the same in drive and reverse, and, you know, yeah, it, it can be considered normal at some point. Without feeling it, it's it's, it's hard to say. Right. Um, but those are the things I would be looking at. I'll tell you what, Dennis, stay on the line. We're going to be sending the Denso Spring Car Care tune-up kit out to you uh, shortly. Harry's going to need to get your uh, some information from you. But uh, we'll send out a set of Denso Iridium TTs. Uh, you know, you can swap those out for the Toyota now, or you can, and, and that's the other conversation we could have had. Maybe you don't have the correct spark plugs. These are spark plug sensitive, but we'll send out a set of Denso Iridium TT spark plugs to you, an air filter, and a set of wiper blades. At least when you get through the trouble fault codes, you'll have some good quality components in the vehicle as far as tune-up-wise, and um, that might help with the overall life of the vehicle as well. Dennis, let me know what happens. I'm here for you at 855-560-9900. All right, take good care of Dennis. Make sure he gets set up with that Denso spring tune-up kit. I'm Ron Anini and the Car Doctor. And, uh, gee, coming up next, a little bit of a surprise. Well, maybe not so much a surprise to you. Well, I'm always a surprise to me. I'm never quite sure what the heck I'm doing behind this microphone. But in any event, I'll be back right after this. Don't go away. Car Doctor rolling along this hour as um, we kind of take things in stride and try to get through the rest of this hour. Um, quick conversation. We had a late model Chevy truck in the shop this week. I just want to tell you a little bit real quick about what the extremes of automobiles are before we get back to the busy phones. Uh, late model Chevy truck, a 2010 uh, Chevy Suburban came in, and the problem was the heated and cooled seats were not functioning. The There's a little blower module. Uh, there's a little blower in each seat that will put out hot or cold air depending upon uh, what you put the settings at and, you know, cool or heat the seat. Now, here's a 150,000-mile vehicle, and, yeah, you know, it's it stood up the test of time. It got to 150, but with no blower operation, I understand their discomfort and went through the normal course of diagnosis. 
And it turns out that it's a fairly common problem. It was under the passenger side seat, uh, pin E on the climate control module, the red with the white trace, the main power feed to that module, had melted. The connector had melted inside. And actually, I took a picture of it. I'll have to get it up on the Facebook page after the show today. I didn't think of that. And it's just interesting to note that the melted connector, you can purchase the connector from General Motors. Just the connector, though. No pigtails, no repair splices, just the connector. So you can you can purchase just the connector, but you, you can't do anything with it because then at that point you would have to sit there and repair the harness, which you're replacing the melted connector for in the first place. So they upgraded it, and now General Motors allows you to purchase a complete power seat cooling system sub wiring harness. You know, it's you can only imagine what's involved in putting this in. It's a you know, it's like a hundred and sixty-five dollar harness. You need some special cloth wound tape. They want you to use cloth wound tape. There's a bulletin that highlights and talks about all the specifics about how this has to be done. Uh, you're probably into you know, it's probably the better part of a five hundred dollar bill to put this harness in. By the time you look at parts and labor. And I understood the customer didn't want to do it. I understand not wanting to put $500 into a car to heat and cool the seats at, at, at this stage and age with the mileage on the truck. But it shows you the extreme and the cost of what it takes to maintain and you know put a vehicle together in terms of, of proper care. And you, know, you wonder to yourself, so what's going to happen when it's not something, um, you know, I'll call it fluff. It's, it's fluff to have heated and cooled seats. You wonder what it's going to take when it becomes something along the lines of, um, oh, I don't know, rearview mirrors that fold in or out or, or some other system that's, you know, sort of critical to the operation of the vehicle. I mean, we see it all the time where ABS and some of the other safety systems of the vehicle are just disregarded. And um, you just say that the cost of technology is really kind of pushing things out the door where people just can't afford to uh, nor choose to uh, deal with it any longer. So, um uh, you know, just an example of what goes on in the shop, how a simple repair. If General Motors still made the – if General Motors had still made the connector with a pigtail, you could have done the repair probably in an hour. But for whatever reason, they, they said no, then, you know, bingo. And now we're into something totally different. So uh, just, just something to be aware of. Anyway, let's get over to the phone lines. I thought you might enjoy that. I'll get a picture of that up on Facebook, Ron Annie and the Car Doctor Facebook page sometime after the show today. Let's go over and talk to John in McKinley, California. Some questions and problems with a 1998 Plymouth Breeze. John, welcome to The Car Doctor, sir. How can I help? Hi, Ron. Thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. Uh, this is uh, what happened with this car. It has about a 1,000 miles of having purchased it for, for a work car. Uh, it quit running, and uh, it was towed to a um, Napa Care Center uh, repair shop. They diagnosed it, and they tested for fuel pressure with its specs. Spark was good. And the computer came up with a code P0320. Right. So indicated being a crank sensor. He replaced the crank sensor, and it still wouldn't work. He could not get the code to erase off the unit. So he determined that the unit was bad, uh, PCM, so he sent it off to a NAPA repair center in Pennsylvania. After a month, he installed it. The car ran for about 10 minutes, and it quit. He checked the code, and he gave the same code, so he replaced the sensor again, and it still wouldn't run. At that point in time, he decided that he gave up. So 
the car was about 240 miles away from where I live, so it was towed to where I live, and now they're telling me that it was probably not that something else. So I'm in the middle of trying to figure out exactly what it is. And okay. So I know I've listened to your program. I thought you might be able to help. So yeah, and I'm glad to, I'm glad to take a swing at this, John. Um, you know, whether the other guy is right or wrong, first let's figure out what's wrong with the car, and then then you can have that conversation with him or me again afterwards. Uh, so right now we've got a car that cranks, doesn't start, correct? Correct. Okay. Uh, what The repair shop that it's at now, did they give you anything definitive as far as same symptoms, same conditions, or is it something different? No, uh, it's not at a shop. I, I currently have it at my home, but I spoke with four different mechanics, and they all allude to not necessarily being the problem with a PCM, but it could be a wire between the PCM and the uh, sensor, or it could be the back plate that might be cracked or broken. And but he he's he's looking at two hours to diagnose the problem correctly. But he doesn't believe there was a PCM to begin with, nor is it now. Right, and and I don't think it is now either. However, if I were diagnosing this at the shop, one of the first things I would do something that was neat in '98. And it's gotten a lot more involved, and it's it's there on newer vehicles as well. You can you can test that PCM. Um, let's let's make some assumptions, John, for the purpose of this conversation. Let's assume that this because this is cranks no start, correct? Correct. All right. So let's assume there's no spark and no injector pulse. All right. Okay. So you know that would have been a common failure for a '98 Plymouth two liter like this. No crank, no, I'm sorry, no cranks, no spark, no injector pulse. First thing I would typically do after pulling codes is testing the PCM. I would have a scan tool that I could put into what we call actuator test mode, ATM, kind of like the bank, all right, ATM. And from there, I can manually try to fire the injector and manually try to fire the spark plug. If I can do that, if I can make spark, test the coils, test the injectors and they work then mm-hmm. i then i know the pcm has a very high chance of being good it's got a very good success rate at that point all right mm-hmm. there's a couple other you know far fetched off to the right down at the end of the list things that could be wrong but you're in the 90 percentile that you've got a good pcm at that point okay. and i'm coming up with a crank or a cam sensor code on that vehicle i need to do two things I need to use a lab scope and wave or electrically test both sensors cranking. Can they put up a pattern? Are the two patterns in sync with each other? Meaning that as the crank comes around, does the cam come around at the correct time? Are they in sync? Think of a bicycle sprocket. All right. Do they have correct signal? Are they in correct relation to each other? And if they pass, then the next place I'm going to go is where the crank sensor wiring, specifically crank sensor wiring, comes down around the back of the engine. The harness, it seemed, would either melt or get congealed together by oil leaking over time and fuse together. And it may not look like it. They may have to actually cut the harness open through the electrical tape and through the protective coating, and they'll find that the harness itself is shorted and touching, creating the no-start condition. Could that cause the PCM to fail? I've never seen it, but anytime we have a conversation about shorted wiring, of course it's on the table. 
But to me, that would be part of what he's trying to do for you in that two-hour diagnosis. And you could ask him this. Yeah. Say, listen, what are you going to do in those two hours? If if he repeats back to you what I just said, yes. then that's the guy that can fix the car. Yeah, that's what he told me. He told me that he's going to uh, put her on and uh, have a cranking in check for the uh, for the sensors to see that they, they get, he's getting the pulse and they have a, a similar wave right. as you described it. Yep. He also... Uh, he believes that uh, it could also be the the back plate. You you know what he's talking about there. Um, I think what he's talking about is the trigger wheel. Okay, yeah. Right, yeah, could be that. Sure, absolutely. And 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 the wave test will tell him that. All right. So yeah. like like I said, I think that's the guy that can fix the car from my seat. Whether or not that other guy got it right or not, let's see what fixes the car first, and then you're going to have a conversation with him. Yeah, I just thought it was kind of a little peculiar that he would just say, okay, I give up, and then state that the car has a wiring problem, and I questioned him what kind of test that he do to de- uh, decide that there's a wiring problem, and right. he couldn't tell what he did. Right. So, But it's neither here nor there. We're over 200 miles away, and I'm not going to take it back there. It right. is The unit is under warranty, and he keeps telling me to send it back for warranty, but I, I, I believe what this other guy is saying that. Yeah. The problem is not with the PCM. Right. However, he, he did tell me, now, see if you ran into this. He said that if there's a problem with that trigger sensor or any wiring, when you're running, it cannot erase the code or clear the code because it's not detecting to clear the code. Is that sound correct? Well, if there's if there's a fault in wiring leading up to the PCM and you trigger it to clear yeah, of course, that may or may not work. Is that what you're asking me, John? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So first things first, let's find and diagnose the problem before we go to the next step. And I understand your pain, brother. I know you're a little skeptical at this point. You've already been through one poser, and you're wondering if you're at the next. But bottom line, it yeah. sounds like he's on the right track. And the guy that's local in town, he's the guy that's struggling to maintain his reputation. Let's see what he has to say, and then we'll talk from there. How's that? Yeah, sounds great, Ron. All Thanks. right, John. Have a good day. Keep me posted. You have a good day, too. You take good care. I'm Ron Anini and the Car Doctor. Back right after this. Welcome back. Ron Anini and the Car Doctor rolling along at 855-560-9900. More information at cardoctorshow.com. Tune in, iHeart, iTunes.com, and you need an email, ron at cardoctorshow.com, as always. And uh, we're proud to be here and happy to serve and take care of each and every one of you if you spend time with us here on the weekend or on podcast or whenever it is that you're listening to this radio show. We know you've got a lot of choices out there, and we're happy and proud to be part of your choice. So speaking of choices, Charles has decided to call us on Line 48, let's get over and talk to him. Somerset, New Jersey. I guess that's Somerset County or Somerset, New Jersey. I'm not sure which. 2007 Toyota Solara. Charles, welcome to the car, Doctor. How can I help? I have a long-time listener. Yes, sir. Um, It's Somerset County, New Jersey. Okay. But um, I got an 07 Solara, Toyota Solara, the 3.3-liter engine, about 50,000 miles. And the transmission was having issues slipping, uh, getting into first gear and then not getting into third gear. Right. So took it to the dealer. 
and they said it needed a brand new, you know, replacement transmission. Okay. A loan of about $4,500, which I thought was kind of, you know, high, high cost for a low mileage car. Well, but, it, uh, you know, and, and again, it, it wouldn't matter if it had mile, mile two on it or mile 200,000. It's it's the same amount of money to replace the unit, labor, and time and material. But anyway, immaterial. What's what's going on with the car? Did the transmission fix it, or you're you're thinking about doing it? Well, so I ended up taking an independent mechanic. Okay. And ended up putting in a, uh, a salvage transmission with, with low mileage, even lower mileage than what I uh, my car has. Right. So that fixed it. My, I guess my question is: Is this a known problem with Toyotas with a three point three liter? No, not necessarily. Not necessarily, Charlie. Let me ask you this: How often did you change the fluid on that trans? It was changed once, uh, uh, about thirty thousand miles. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of an unusual failure. The the reason it happens, I'll tell you what, Charlie. Let me pull over and take the pause. Stay put because I don't want to rush through this. And um, when we come back, we'll we'll finish up with you from there. I'm Ron Anini and the Car Doctor. We're back right after this. Welcome back. We're on the car doctor trying to squeeze it all in this hour. Let's go back to Charlie. Charlie, you there, sir? Yes. P0796 was the fault code that they had? Right. Okay. Let me explain it to you like this. If you put three buttons on top of the dashboard, push buttons, one, two, and three, every time you pushed a button, you would shift a gear. All right. right? An electrical signal. That's basically what the solenoid is doing. The, the engine controller does that to the transmission. You be the PCM, the buttons would be the shift solenoids. But now we've got a computer in place because obviously you're too busy driving and you can't take the time to do it, and you don't know everything the PCM knows. So the shift buttons would be the solenoids. A P0796 means that there is a fault with the C solenoid or third gear solenoid itself and it's seeing a fault in other words it's being commanded it doesn't see proper mechanical response your question is is it a common fault not necessarily common i've seen a few of them usually it's a solenoid and there's some testing that they have to go through why the dealership recommended to replace the trans without seeing it without being there you know did did they actually test something and they came back to that are they basing it on common failures yeah i agree at fifty thousand miles cost irrelevant at 50,000 miles, it shouldn't happen. Um, and, right, and, right. So, it's, the dealer said, you know, replace transmission. I took it to an independent, and they, uh, first they thought they could get away with just changing out the solenoid. And that didn't control. work. And they looked at the transmission, and I guess, uh, based on the examination, they recommended putting in a... Uh, right. So, so something was wrong with that trans. As, as transes go, no, Toyotas really don't have that many problems. Haven't seen them, not at that age, not at that mileage. I will say this. The one thing that Toyota does along with the rest of the car companies is they're banging on the drum with regard to never changing fluid, never servicing it. The fact that you changed it at approximately 30 and here's the trans at 50 and you had the issue, right. as long as the proper fluid was used, you can't sit there and say, well, you know, it's it's the fault of servicing because it 
clearly was serviced. You know, you had the one, Charlie. I mean, that's the best answer I've got. You know, you had that. You were in that two or three percentile for failure at that mileage. It's not common, but it happens. Uh, you know, and I understand why you used a salvage unit. Um, I would keep a close law. I would keep a close eye on fluid condition, and just see. You know, what does the fluid look like in five thousand, ten thousand, fifteen thousand miles, and so on. Um, I would clearly make sure. I'd probably look very hard at 10,000 miles and maybe consider changing it if the fluid's starting to turn color, and then maybe think about, do you have an issue with the trans cooler located in the bottom of the radiator as far as for fluid contamination? But um, not a common failure, not at that mileage, and um, just odd, but it happens. Charlie, I hope that answered the question for you. Until the next time, I'm Ron Anini and the Car Doctor. The mechanics aren't expensive. They're priceless. They're priceless.